All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. We're about a week into the Russian invasion of Ukraine and a lot of people right now are wondering what, if any, response do the United States have to this pretty much act of naked aggression on the part of Vladimir Putin? What is our responsibility, if we have any, to Ukraine or toward attempting to maintain some sort of stability and peace within the world. We're gonna be talking about this question today on making the argument where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Okay, so this has been an interesting topic of debate. You've actually seen some kind of strange bedfellows, as it were, when we talk about politics and what should the United States response be to Putin, right? You've got some people that have actually gone out there and, you know, said, you know, nice things about Putin. You've got other people that are demanding that we go in, you know, full scale and go to war with Russia over Ukraine. The question is, is, is where do I think we should stand as a nation? And where do I stand as someone that believes in U.S. military dominance, believes that the U.S. military plays a vital role in, in ensuring peace across the world, but by the same token, has a much more non-interventionist foreign policy than a lot of my conservative colleagues, right? It's not to say that I don't think war is ever necessary, but I am far more skeptical of spending U.S. blood and treasure in fighting other people's wars. Doesn't mean that there's never a point where it could be necessary in order to prevent a larger conflict. But what situation are we in right now, and what is the best response with respect to the United States and potential intervention into Ukraine? So let's kind of set the stage here real quick. I think everyone understands that the Russian military, the Russian economy, the Russian population, all of it is significantly bigger than Ukraine. So this is a much bigger you know, war fighting machine with, with more economic prowess behind it invading Ukraine. The other thing that we have to take into consideration is that there is a historical record here, right? For a long time, Ukraine was a part of Russia or a part of the Russian empire, right? The other thing that we need to understand is that a lot of things shifted with respect to the borders of what we would consider to be historical Ukraine under the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, right? The USSR, right? So let's, let's do a little bit of backstory here so we all understand this. First of all, the first incursion since Ukraine became a country the first incursion was the Russians coming in and annexing the Crimea. Now, the Russians tried to justify this because Crimea was not historically kind of automatically considered a part of Ukraine until the 1950s and 60s when there was a long, bloody civil war where the Ukrainians were fighting against the communists after World War II. So there was a big insurgency campaign. Uh, the, the communists managed to suppress it but kind of a conciliatory move by Nikita Khrushchev 
was to take Crimea, which had originally been part of the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic, and move it over to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Now, again, from Khrushchev's position, or from anybody else paying attention at that time, this really didn't mean much because it was all staying within the body of the USSR, which was still controlled by Moscow. But it was seen as a way to kind of you know, smooth things over with respect to a long and bloody conflict in Ukraine. So when the Soviet Union broke apart, it took with it those borders with, that the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic previously had, right? So this is one of the ways that Putin was able to, in his own mind, I don't think it was relevant, but in his own mind kind of justify his incursion into Crimea. It had a large Russian ethnic population. Uh, there was different separatist groups that, let's be honest, the Russians had already kind of financed and, and helped uh, trigger. Um, and so they were able to kind of get away with this during the Obama administration, right? But there was other areas of Ukraine that the Russians could claim were more ethnically and culturally Russian. You had these various separatist groups in the Donbass region, which is in eastern Ukraine, which is, again, another you know, separatist organization that the Russians were encouraging and, and uh, you know, helping equip. And so as Putin was moving in and getting more and more aggressive toward Ukraine, what he used as his justification for going to war was that, oh, no, he wasn't invading Ukraine. No, he was simply coming to help the ethnically Russian population of eastern Ukraine uh, kind of fight back in their separatist movement against the government of Ukraine. Now, one of the other justifications he's used is the Ukrainian government is heavily corrupt. Yes. I mean, there, there's no question that it is heavily corrupt. They do have democratic elections, but they had a pro-Russian uh, um, you know, prime minister that was essentially overthrown, replaced with a you know, pro-Western prime minister. And there's been this constant back and forth, not just between Ukraine and Russia, but also between the West and NATO and Russia. So Russia has essentially said that because you know, NATO moving into Ukraine or the Ukraine pretty much going into the European Union's sphere of influence or the West sphere of influence with NATO was untenable to the Russians because now it puts a NATO ally and NATO was originally put together to pretty much fight against the Warsaw Pact and the, the Soviet bloc. It's putting them on their borders. Now, you can come back and argue that that ship's already sailed. Estonia's part of um, NATO, um, you know, Lithuania is part of NATO, and they're on the Russian border, so what's the big deal? I think it's a, it's a confluence of things, right? So there's those, you know, ethnic and historical issues with respect to the Crimea and eastern parts of Ukraine. There's the problems that we've already seen with the Ukrainian government. There's the idea that Russia, and I think Putin specifically, sees this as an opportunity to once again, you know, restore the greatness of Russia. Um, I think there's also other strategic implications that are maybe not even really obvious right now, but could become obvious. And that has to do with almost kind of return to this Cold War balance that we experienced when it was the Soviet Union and the United States, except now it would be a combination of probably Russia and China um, with obviously them being, you know, bordering one another with there being, um, you know, more ties now that you see between China and Russia as a result of their pushing back against Western influence and Western economic dominance. Uh, you see things like the, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative from China, which encourages trade, not just through Chinese ports, but actually going uh, overland routes in the West, going through Russia, going through the Middle East, you know, going to the Black Sea. You know, all these different factors play into what I think is, is Putin's rationale for what he's trying to do and what he's trying to achieve in Russia. All right, the question is, is, does any of this excuse on a moral level the invasion of Ukraine? And I would say absolutely not. Whether Russia likes it or not, Ukraine is a sovereign nation, internationally recognized, 
and they just don't have any sort of right under international law. And, and again, we all understand that international law is tendentious at best. But to, to go ahead and, and invade in order to you know, take these areas that it wants. The question is, is why did Putin decide to do it now? Well, I think there's a lot of other factors going into that. Obviously, the United States is very war-weary. We have a very obviously weak president and weak administration. I think a lot of that has been demonstrated, not just with the respect to how they've handled everything from you know, COVID to the economy to inflation, but also how they handled the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Right, so Putin knows that the Americans are very, very war-weary. We've just come out of the you know, two longest wars in American history. There's no appetite for U.S. forces going back in and fighting for, especially a country like Ukraine, where we have no treaty obligations to them. So we might have treaty obligations for NATO. Ukraine's not a part of NATO. So I think Putin thinks that if he operates quickly um, and, and he takes a sizable part of the Ukraine in one foul swoop, that he can probably show up to the negotiating table. He can hand certain portions back. He can keep other portions that he wants. He comes off looking like he was a you know, big Russian strongman that you know, rejuvenated the pride of, of being Russian by fighting a war in order to rescue you know, ethnic Russians within Ukraine and save them from a corrupt government, et cetera, right? Not to mention the fact that at that point he would also push back against the United States while probably also fostering closer economic ties with China and not be as dependent on the West for things like, you know, selling oil or natural gas or, or things of that nature, right? It's not to say that he wants to stop selling it, but he doesn't want to be dependent on things like SWIFT, which allows for quick financial transactions and the exchange of currencies and whatnot. But you have to be, you know, a part of SWIFT in order to get that. And so some of this, I think, is triggering a lot of economic ties with China that would create a, a, a position for Russia where they're not as dependent on those Western European and U.S.-backed um, you know, trade negotiations and, and mechanisms for you know, encouraging uh, international trade and transactions. So I think all of that goes into Putin's reasoning on, on some level, right? Could there be other things? Sure. There's been some people that have said that, well, Putin's acting very you know, erratic. Look, when you're essentially an authoritarian, it becomes really easy to slip into the world of being you know, highly suspicious. You saw this with Hitler, where he's moving around fake divisions at the end of World War II, you saw this with Stalin, where he's constantly purging his own general corps. I, I don't think Putin is at that point yet. I think he's still, you know, again, I don't agree with the decisions that he's making. I still think he's thinking clearly with respect to his strategic initiatives and where the West is and what their current capacity is for, you know, being able to um, stand up to him. So you've got a, a very, you know, war-weary United States, and you've got a bunch of NATO powers that, quite frankly, have not taken their contribution to NATO seriously. And let's, let's be honest, why should they? They've always been able to rely on the United States as kind of the big stick and the global hegemon when it comes to military and economic dominance. And so this idea that they had to spend a bunch of money on their own militaries when they could inevitably rely on the United States to bail them out has been something that they've become accustomed to. And it wasn't until President Trump came in and said, no, you're going to start actually paying the, the percentage of the GDP that you are bound by treaty to pay in order to actually provide for your own defense, that some of those NATO countries started getting serious about that again. So now they find themselves in a situation where the United States is not going to carry the heavy load on this one, and they've got to decide what they're going to do, if anything, with respect to supporting Ukraine. So that's where we're at. With respect to the invasion, what you saw with Russia is kind of what you would expect to see without any sort of massive like Western buildup or Western intervention into Ukraine. And that is the Soviet, or excuse me, not the Soviet, the Russian military is significantly larger, significantly better equipped, um, and they, they've largely 
you know, dominated any sort of like pitch battles that they've had with the Ukrainian military. Now, this is not to say that the Ukrainian military has just been walked all over. They haven't. But if you look at um, Russian military doctrine, it, there's always been a lot of emphasis on their armored divisions, on their armored units. Ukraine it has a lot of flat terrain. It is, it is uniquely suited um, for, for armored warfare. And I think the Ukrainian military has done a pretty good job of remaining intact by not getting involved in certain pitch battles, which essentially they cannot win. And they're trying to use the geography, especially the, uh, the Dnieper River, to their advantage in order to basically force geographic choke points so that when the Russians come in, they can take their, they, they can kind of um, combat their, the numerical superiority of uh, Russian equipment. The other thing the Ukrainians have um, really focused on is two elements here, which I think is really smart on their side. One has been the propaganda war. I don't think there's any question right now that if you're in the West, you're, you're I mean, there, there's all kinds of different, um, you know, stories which could be true, could be apocryphal. You know, you have things like the ghost of Kiev, right? You have um, you know, these various stories coming about, about, you know, effective snipers with the Ukrainians. So it's this idea, not to mention the fact that the, um, the political leadership within Ukraine has done a very good job of, you know, really encouraging their people, giving their people something to rally around, right? Like this wasn't like Afghanistan where all of a sudden, as soon as the Americans were leaving, bam, the political leadership ditched the country. Now the political leadership is largely, as far as we know, stayed in Ukraine and has been rallying their people, asking for support. The Ukrainian um, Ministry of Defense handed out, you know, thousands of uh, automatic weapons to its population, encouraging them in order to resist uh, the Russian military. So what does Ukraine need to do at this point? So obviously Ukraine wants the West to get involved. They would love nothing more than the United States to come in and either offer air support or advanced weaponry in the form of things like Javelin missile systems, uh, which are anti-tank weapons, um, things like uh, AT-4s, which is a much more you know, lightweight uh, anti-tank weapon but still highly effective, uh, things like Stinger missiles, things like other sort of equipment that can be used in order to push back against um, Russian air dominance right now because while the Ukrainian Air Force is still around, it's still it's significantly smaller than the Russians and it's very, very hard to you know, gain any sort of momentum if you can't get air superiority. All right? So the Ukrainians have focused on arming their population, ensuring that you have um, like a, a partisan fight going on so that the Russians have to fight for every sort of stitch of territory that they have. Um, They've also done a good job of, of using their military in such a way as to keep it intact, right? And the reason why this is so important and what we call asymmetric warfare, and asymmetric warfare is just kind of a fancy term we use when you have a weaker power fighting a stronger power, and how do they use you know, certain advantages that they have in order to exploit certain disadvantages that the larger or stronger power has. And that's where things like the propaganda war comes into place. That's where things like uh, your partisan forces working behind enemy lines takes place, right? All of those different strategies are really, really important for one, either getting more Western support and it help you, um, or two, just making the Russians pay the highest price possible for every bit of ground they want. The Russians, on the other hand, are engaging in like straight up maneuver warfare. They're trying to move as far and as fast and to take many, uh, as much territory as possible in order to get to a place where they have a significant strategic advantage and then puts them in a, a really good position for negotiation. So for instance, if they were able to, you know, uh, they, they've, they've rolled over a significant portion of the eastern part of the country, but they're still running into geographical problems with the river, with the, again, the Dnieper River going through the center of the country. Um, they would need to take Kiev. They would need to essentially destroy um, you know, the vast, vast bulk of the Ukrainian military, there's nothing really to rally around anymore, or they would need to try to capture the political leaders um, 
and, and get to a position where there's really no um, you know, political or, or military establishment in Ukraine for an insurgency force to be able to rally around or to give them a position of strength with respect to negotiation. So that's what Russia's trying to do. Here's what Russia's found out. Yes, opening invasion, when, when you're setting the time where you get to attack, you know where you're going to attack, with what, and you get to choose all of that, you can make really quick gains, and that's what you saw the Russians doing. However, I don't think they got as far as they wanted. And I think you're starting to see that in the south of the country with Crimea, where they, you know, they, they took everything they wanted right away, but they, they got held up with the river. You're seeing the same thing in the north where there's, it's getting bogged down. The other thing that you're going to start to see is as the Russian military moved past these population centers, yes, the Ukrainian military might have moved out of those population centers. That doesn't mean the fighting has stopped. And one of the biggest things that, that you learn in this sort of type of warfare, the United States has had to learn this lesson several times over, just because you've destroyed or, or just because you've removed certain elements or you've, you've taken the field doesn't mean the fighting stops when you have a population that is willing to fight against you. And, and, a, and a, um, a, a halfway decent equipped partisan force fighting in an urban area can extract a huge toll right on, a, on another military force, right? Because all of a sudden... This isn't about moving your tanks as quickly as possible to destroy your enemy's tanks. Now you've got tanks that have to maneuver within city blocks where the partisans have a lot of advantages with respect to where they can hide, with respect to the sort of weapon systems that they can use. Again, they don't even necessarily need to destroy the tank, right? If they can stop a tank in place, if they can cause um, you know, more forces to have to come back and, and repair it, that's a win. Uh, the other thing that partisans tend to do in urban areas, which is a really smart move, is you don't attack the tanks, you attack supply lines. You attack softer targets. You basically take the, again, this is the asymmetry, right? You take the advantages that you have within weapons and the fact that um, you, you can move quickly, you know the terrain that you're fighting in, you can use it to your advantage, and then you find the soft targets that are used usually around your supply network um, for the invading force, and you start hitting those really hard because what it does is it requires the maneuver force to start dedicating more and more combat troops to protecting their supply lines as opposed to being at the tip of the spear fighting the Ukrainian military, right? And as, and as long as Ukrainian partisans can continue to do that and do that effectively, you're going to start to see more and more troops drained out to the front line in order to come back to de defend that, or you're going to require more troops from Russia coming into the country in order to defend those supply lines. And a lot of times that's done with troops that might be conscripts, that might not be as well equipped, um, the, the, you know, whether it's their, their munitions that they carry or whether it's their, um, the tanks or the APCs they have access to, right? So that's, that's where you get the asymmetric advantage for the, the partisans in many respects. And again, if they do that effectively, what it will do is it will completely slow down the Russian advance. It gives the Ukrainian military the time to re-equip, reorganize, you know, pick the, the, the places that they want to fight that give them the best advantage. It also drags out the war even longer to where now the West starts to consider what they're going to do in order to provide support to the Ukraine. It might not be troops, it might not be aircraft, but it might be supplies, right? It might be more food, it might be more ammunition. Like I said, it could be those Stinger missiles or Javelin uh, anti-tank systems. It could be AT-4s, it could be, you know, just ammunition for AK-47s, etc. Like, like the more time that Ukraine has to be able to convince the West to either provide volunteers or supply, the better their position becomes and the worse Russia's position becomes. The other big thing that happens with a partisan fight, especially in the age where you have internet, where everyone has got a camera on their phone, is that the propaganda war becomes far more difficult for the Russians when you're trying to put down a partisan effort because it automatically becomes this David and Goliath scenario that quite frankly the West loves, 
right? It's this idea of, you know, like Miss Ukraine out there with an AK-47, you know, and she might not even be anywhere around the fight, but if she's showing videos and she's willing to sit, she becomes a symbol for other Ukrainians to fight, right? It, it's the pictures of someone driving by in a car and throwing a Molotov cocktail at an APC and setting it on fire. Now, it might not even do a lot of damage, right? But once again, it, it helps with the propaganda war. It also creates an authoritarian guy like Putin to start to get very, very frustrated with his inability to control these areas and pacify them, which leads them to take more and more draconian measures. So that's more artillery shelling of civilian population centers that don't really have any you know, significant military uh, objectives other than trying to get to partisans. And the more innocents you are hurting, right, or the more partisans that you're hurting, the more it paints the picture in such a way that Russia cannot afford, not just for the Western population, it can't afford for elements of its own population. And one of the things that I think is important and willing to consider as we look at all of this is that the longer this plays out, the longer, the more Russian troops die, the more Russian equipment gets destroyed, the more it becomes clear that this is not going to be a quick victory and that they can get bogged down into an insurgency that they don't want to fight. The worse it becomes for the Russian economy as, you know, their, their ability to sell uh, you know, goods, um, it, you know, diminishes and they can, they can no longer fund the, the private sector portions of their economy because all the money is now going into the invasion. The more you run into a situation where not only you have civilian unrest within Russia itself, but you also create a scenario where some enterprising Russian general or Russian politician sees this as their opportunity to potentially challenge Putin. And the moment that happens, now Putin not only has to worry about what's going on in Ukraine, he's got to actually worry about what's going on within Russia itself. And that becomes really, really problematic for him on an international stage from a propaganda perspective. So that's a once over the world on what's going on on the ground. So we gave you some history. We gave what's going on on the ground. What do I think the United States should do? Well, I'm going to tell you right now, I do not think the United States should go to war over Ukraine. And, and I, I need people to understand this. Because this is, this is not me being a squish on Russia. I think what Russia is doing right now is morally reprehensible. But I do think that Ukraine, we have no treaty obligations to Ukraine. I do think Ukraine has an obligation to fight for its own freedom. And it's doing that. Now, do I think that there are ways that the United States or private companies within the United States can help the Ukrainians? Absolutely. Do I think that there's certain economic sanctions or, or consequences pushed toward Russia that would be appropriate? Absolutely. I mean, quite frankly, you've got people like Senator Elizabeth Warren patting herself on the back for issuing a stern statement against Putin. Well, let's ask the people of Ukraine, what do they appreciate more? Elizabeth Warren's, like, you know, feckless solidarity or the fact that Elon Musk, right, used Starlink in order to make sure that they still have internet within the Ukraine, right? These are the sort of ways that people can voluntarily, not because some government required them to, not because some government forced them to, but they can voluntarily use their resources in order to help the Ukrainians fight this fight. Now, there's other countries in Europe that might decide that because of Russia's proximity to them and the threat it poses to their security, they might want to become more militarily involved. Great. I think they should make that decision. And I think they should have to make it without relying on the United States expending blood and treasure to once again you know, fight against a, a despot in, in Eastern Europe that is threatening them. And, and I actually think that there, there's some beneficial um, consequences both for the Ukraine and for NATO, and for the United States by us not fully declaring war and going into the Ukraine. Or God help us not declaring war and going into the Ukraine. I think one, it reestablishes in the United States that we have to get back to the process for how we use to determine whether or not we go to war. And it can't just be because the president sees a threat. It has to be 
Congress fully involved and actually voting to declare war. I think if we put a heavy emphasis on that from both sides of the aisle, saying that regardless of what we do, we're not doing anything until Congress has actually voted on a declaration of war, if that's what you want to do. I think that's beneficial for the United States. I think the other thing that's beneficial for the United States is for Western Europe, who a lot of those countries in the UN have, have loved nothing more than slamming the United States, right? There's some exceptions, right? The UK has been a, a great ally. Australia has been a great ally, but obviously, you know, they're not as, as concerned with what's going on in Europe right now. And there's, and there's been others, right? So I don't want to paint everyone with the same brush, but there's been a lot of countries in Europe that have gotten really used to relying upon American military supremacy for their security, then then turn around and trash us every chance they get. And quite frankly, I'm sorry, I'm, I, I don't care if this is obtuse or not. I think it's good for them to realize that there was a benefit to that U.S. military supremacy and that they should be responsible to be good allies to the United States by actually providing for their own defense and not simply propping up their welfare states because the United States has got their back if they ever get in trouble. So I think, I think a part of this is actually good for, for Europe to once again recognize that, or some countries in Europe to once again recognize they're also responsible for the security. It's not just on us. I think the other thing that's good for Europe is that they're going to recognize that. They're going to recognize that, look, you don't get to sit there and complain about US the U.S. military, the U.S. Uh, foreign policy, and not have the capacity to be able to defend your own borders or defend your allies. And so I think that will actually be good for Europe in the long run. Um, economically, I think this is also advantageous because Europe has been heavily dependent on Russian oil. It's been heavily uh, dependent on Russian gas. I, I think there needs to be some alternatives. I think they need to realize that constantly doing deals with despots is not always a good idea. I think where this is good for the Ukrainian people is that there is something, um, one of the things the United States does when we get involved in wars is we don't just go in and assist, we take over the whole thing and, and we make it our war. And, and, and I don't mean this to sound insensitive to the people that are, are fighting, right? I don't mean this to sound like we're the big kids just standing back watching the little kid get beat up. People need to fight their own fights. People need to feel that sense that it is th them fighting for their country. And while they might want assistance, and while, while they might need assistance at times, right, it still needs to be their fight with other people helping, not our fight that we took over for them, and now we're in charge. And now we're going to play the dominant role in establishing the peace afterwards, or determining what their government looks like. Right? I don't, we don't want to be in that role. We shouldn't want to be in the role. I want the Ukrainian people to come out of this victorious, I, I think there's ways that we can help. I think you're already seeing some of that in a way that will help ensure that they're, they're victorious and that Russia has to withdraw. But at the end of the day, I want them to stand up and say, we fought this fight. And yeah, we had help, but we fought this fight. It was our fight and we won it. And if they can continue to do what they're doing right now, keep the Ukrainian military intact, right? Avoid pitch battles where you have a huge disadvantage, right? You don't need to go dying on every hill, right? To show how brave you are. Keep your military intact. Keep your political infrastructure intact. Make sure that you continue to fund those pockets of resistance behind the Russian lines. Target those supply lines. Do it in such a way to where Russia is, is being drained of support, both externally and internally. Make, make this as costly for Russia as possible. Continue the propaganda war in such a way to where Putin opens up another front with his own population. right? And that's how we get to a point where Russia has to move back. We haven't expanded the United States military's role in this. The other thing that we've done is we have kept our own powder dry because China is watching everything that's happening right now. And China does have designs on Taiwan, on the Spratly Islands, and, and I'm sure on a number of other things within that region. And the United States does have treaty obligations with South Korea, with Japan, with Taiwan, or the Republic of China, right? We do have treaty obligations there, and we need to make sure that we're able to live up to those treaty obligations. So 
I don't think there's I don't I don't think we're going soft on Putin by saying that this is not a war that the United States needs to take over and be responsible for. There are ways that we can continue to support Ukraine. We should continue to do that, right? But ultimately, I think there's actually going to be, if we continue to do what we're doing right now, and I don't mean everything because there's a lot of things Biden has done wrong. In fact, one of the biggest things he's done wrong is, is basically hamstring our own energy development within this country where we could be possibly providing an alternative to Russia. Instead, Biden seems just adamant on, on you know, again, hamstringing our own energy production and development, which is absurd, right? So I don't mean continue to do what the administration is doing. I'm saying the United States should not take over this war. We should find ways to assist short of the United States military being directly involved. Europe needs to step up and decide what role it wants to play in this. The Ukrainians need to keep fighting the way that they're fighting. Again, keep, keep pushing, keep getting support. And then again, we need to continue to put Putin in a position where he has to rethink his entire strategy here and whether or not this is actually going to weaken him domestically in such a way to where he could potentially use power. I think if you do that, um, I, I think he pulls out. I think he sues for peace very quickly. He tries to find some mechanism in order to claim victory. The quickest way out of this is if both sides can actually claim victory on some level. That's going to be the quickest way. Might not be the best way, but that's going to be the quickest way. And then we also need to make sure that we are actually, you know, um, <clears throat> at the same time that we're doing this, the same time we're saying it's not our responsibility to, to fight the entire war, we do need to be increasing our trade capacity with Europe in such a way to where um, we can be an alternative so that you don't have allied nations that are so heavily dependent on Russia. We need to also be you know, reinforcing our commitments to allies that we do have treaties with so that we can also deter China from seeing this as an opportunity to go from saber rattling to actually engaging in an all-out war. All right, so that's the strategy according to, to Nick. Again, what's my credentials in this? Well, my specialty in the military was unconventional warfare and counterinsurgency, so I do know a little bit of something about what's going on in Ukraine right now and the various tactics that are being used. All right, once again, thank you very much for joining this episode. Please leave us your comments, leave us your insight. We love to read through them, and it, it influences the way that we engage and influences future episodes that we develop as well. So once again, I'm Nick Freitas from Making the Argument. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.